Last one to the party, a podcast where we check in with someone checking out a longtime classic for the very first time. Welcome to this episode of Last One to the Party. This episode, we're talking with Andrew Eastwick. Andrew is an author and also a grant writer at After School All Stars. After School All Stars provides after school programming in underserved communities in 19 different cities in the United States. And now, with the quarantine, they're offering virtual learning options as well as food assistance. So, Andrew's doing some pretty good, noble work. Andrew is also an old friend of ours, as well as being Tara Copeland's husband. Tara was, uh, participated with us on the Taxi Driver episode not too long ago, and this time she made Andrew sit down and watch Working Girl for the first time. Working Girl came out in 1988. It's directed by Mike Nichols. It stars Melanie Griffith, Harrison Ford, and Sigourney Weaver. It was nominated for about eight Oscars, I believe it was. It won only one for Best Song, Carly Simon's Let the River Run. We have some tangents and digressions on this episode, as usual. We get into a tangent about Richard Gere, and also sexism and workplace harassment that still prevails today, as well as racism in the movie industry in general. And also, Andrew has some divergent opinions on this movie from Jessica. This is one of Jessica's favorite movies, and you can tell that there's parts where she's surprised that he wasn't struck by it the same way she was. So it's a good, fun episode. So let's get started with uh, Andrew Eastwick talking to us about his first time seeing Working Girl. What was your awareness of Working Girl before seeing it? How much did you know about it? What were you anticipating? I was looking forward to it. I was aware of it when it came out. I was 13 in 1988. I had had probably seen two or three R-rated films at that point, but none none in the theater. And if I was going (laughs) to negotiate with my parents to let me see an R-rated film, it probably wouldn't have been Working Girl. I remember (laughs) the Oscars. There was that whole interesting thing where Sigourney Weaver was nominated for Gorillas in the Mist. So she was competing against her co-star, Melanie Griffith. Yes, that's right. She was also nominated for Best Supporting Actress. I, I, I think I saw probably some promo about the Oscars or something. And, and I remember that being this interesting thing that was happening with that movie. And then that was like right before I really got into movies which happened i was interested in movies but not like in cinema until maybe two or three years later and when i started really getting into into films i really got into 70s movies because at that point in the early 90s the 80s films hadn't were too recent to be part of the canon yet it hadn't really been assessed or reassessed in that way so the most recent era that was old enough to be part of the canon, but recent enough that as a teenager, I could still relate to it was the the 70s era. So that was really what I got into. And also nostalgia typically is 20 years prior. In the 70s, there was all that 50s nostalgia with American Graffiti and Happy Days and on and on and on. And then so the 90s were the, the era of 70s nostalgia. Exactly. Yeah. And the 80s were, the 80s weren't an era yet. It would take another 10 years to really get a handle on that period and what the zeitgeist of it was. It was later that I that I started catching up with some of the 80s films that I was too young to see when they came out. But one sort of funny thing that happened with that particular film was I was around 99 or 2000 
I was uh, living in Philadelphia with a friend from high school. His mom had this friend that we hung out with a lot. That guy's brother had this massive collection of VHS tapes that he had dubbed or taped off HBO and Showtime. One day he came over with this trash bag full of old VHS tapes from his brother. And we divided them up because it was like right before we'd moved out and each got our own places. And I ended up with this dubbed copy of Working Girl, among many other things. And I put it on to watch it one night and it the quality of the picture had deteriorated so badly that it was unwatchable. So I had seen a badly dubbed copy of the opening scene on the Staten Island Ferry 20 years ago. And then I just never got around to actually sitting down and watching it. So now I've, I've finally seen it. What's your overall opinion about it? What what stood out for you about that movie? It was well you you asked what what idea I might have formed of it. I had kind of an idea of what the plot was. I knew the basic plot, but it developed in a different way than I thought it was going to. I was expecting that there was going to be this sort of constant tension between Melanie Griffith and Sigourney Weaver that there would be that she steals the idea and then Melanie Griffith is like trying to get revenge on her and she teams up with Harrison Ford. And the way that it develops is all very different from that. Sigourney Weaver is just absent from big chunks of the movie. Harrison Ford doesn't come in until probably 45 minutes into it. So I had I had a much different idea of the plot and kind of the tone of the movie. It's a it's a romantic comedy, and it's a comedy in the sense that it's not really serious, but I didn't really think it was that funny. I, I wonder if it would be different watching it with an audience, if more things would pop. I also think it's it's of those movies that don't get made much anymore, which is, I don't know how to explain it. It's just a movie. It has serious parts. It has funny parts. It's not a, a movie that has to have bits and jokes and set pieces and go meta and just be joke, 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 laugh, laugh, laugh all the time. It's the kind of movie where it's, yeah, it's a comedy. It's, it was kind of more accepted as a comedy back in 1988 without needing the demands of it being fall down funny every minute and a half. Right. Yeah, it's it's um, a lot of it's amusing. But it's, I also thought it was going to be more more kind of in the screwball tradition. And it has, the plot is farcical, but the way that those elements play out, it's not big the way farce tends to be. The plot's ridiculous, but it doesn't play as ridiculous. It's played pretty straight. I, I, the funniest, Joan Cusack is very funny in it. Harrison Ford's funny. It made me wish he had done more comedy. I guess there's still time. But. <laughs> <laughs> he's so handsome. It's at the height of his handsomeness. He's so charming. Yeah, he's very charming. Uh, Sigourney, oh, the performances are great. But yeah, it was. Uh, it definitely violated my expectations. It's like that fairy tale mode of romantic comedy. So when I saw it, I didn't really question any of the different plot points along the way of her ascent. And, and maybe that speaks to my gullibility or naivete. What was the first thing that happens that strikes you as ridiculous and implausible? The one that maybe not the first one, but the one that stands out the most is when they crash the wedding of uh, of the CEO's daughter to present this idea to him. It's also it's also one of those movies where it takes place in a business, but you never really know what the business actually does. They they acquire other companies, I guess. It's all like very vague. There's a lot of business talk, but it's vague enough that you don't really 
you don't really know what what it is that they do. It's eighties business. It's eighties business. Yes, it's like in I think it was in nineteen ninety, but when Pretty Woman came out, Richard Gere is kind of doing. 80s business. You know, that's uh, we buy companies and break them up and that happens in Wall Street and you don't really follow the the thread of what it is that they do exactly and a lot of those 80s movies it's all just about big suits, business. It, it's it's an interesting contrast with trading places because that gets into some really specific stuff about the stock market and that that's also a, a very classically structured farce that is about this business revenge plot but the but the the way that it's styled and the way that it develops is extremely different the performances are all great the plot is basically a fairy tale was there anything about it that it's directed by mike nichols so was there anything about it that struck you as specifically connected to mike nichols or and or was there anything about it that struck you as particularly 80s the fashions are very 80s yes and the hair Uh, um, and kind of hard to look at. I don't know if it's because I was in the, you know, the darkest valley of adolescence during that time, but I, I really detest the fashion from that period. I think a lot of people hate the fashions that they have to live through in the, in the most, you know, difficult periods of their life. During their awkward teen years. Right, yeah. They're back. So much of the 80s are back. And the, ni- and the 90s. Yeah. The, the the early the early and mid eighties fashions are kind of fun, but then when it got into the late eighties with like the acid wash jeans and the shoulders and the big hair, it's like hip hop. I think got us out of that. The question about Mike Nichols is interesting because it really made me think about his career. He had such a varied career outside of film with Second City and uh, Nichols and May and all his stage work. And as a film director, he he found his niche in that new Hollywood era, which enabled him to flourish and have the kind of career that he did. But he was also not totally a part of that either, probably because he came from the stage as, as opposed to coming from film school and TV and he was he was he was a bit older than a lot of those directors but he was like I I, I was thinking about him and and comparing his career with uh, Sidney Pollock they both had uh, these careers where they were able to move very easily between more personal projects and more kind of director for hire projects maybe I haven't seen enough of their films but from what I can tell never really developed a signature style the way that Scorsese and Altman and Coppola did that's not a criticism but it's it's something interesting for a director who whose heyday was in that era that was that was so defined by the auteur theory that was so prevalent among the critics of that time. It's possible also that maybe they get dropped down the list in consideration of their auteurship and their artistry because they don't have that one singular thing that they kind of keep beating you over the head with. There's, I'm just glancing on IMDb at both of their lists of films that they directed, and it's this astounding list of successes that are all terrific movies, and none of them are, none of them are particularly intense or overtly artistic, but they're all just great, well-made, well-acted, well-crafted films. Yeah, I, I think Nichols did a little bit like, especially in The Graduate, The Graduate has, the, the scene that really stuck out 
to me in Working Girl was the one where Melanie Griffith and Harrison Ford are sitting in the office talking to the boss's underlings. The one really stylized scene in the film where it's shot in a way that you have a sense of the enormity of this room with these huge ceilings and all the wood paneling and the big windows. It's done in this very stylized two shot where it cuts back and forth between the the two pairs of people um, who are framed in these still shots. And that reminded me of the stylization of something like Trading Place. And the rest is not like that at all. So that scene really stuck out, whereas the rest of the film is, is shot in a pretty flat, direct way. I would say, and this isn't about me, but I think Mike Nichols' signature is the the acting in his films. And I do think the beginning ones are more stylized. Like you said, I think The Graduate is actually very stylized, very stylized. And so is um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? The camera does a lot of the storytelling, I feel like, in that film, along with the performances that are breathtaking. But for me, I'm with you. Like, I think Working Girl, you don't watch it for the, the pyrotechnics of <laughs> what the film can do. However, the performances are next level like I feel like that's for me why it holds itself is because I'm so enwrapped with these people and I think there's a scene in the film that is particularly for me one of my favorite scenes it's the one where they have the birth I think it's not the birthday party but she's she goes back and she and Alec Baldwin are at the the bar together they start playing lady in red and they both have a moment where they sit there and there's a beat I don't know. Did, did that stand out to you at all? Or you were like, oh, it, it didn't. What? Uh, any thoughts on it? I feel like it's the sort of thing that movies today don't, especially comedies, don't take the time to do, to, to flesh out the relationships that are around the edges of the film. Everything tends to be really focused on just pushing the plot forward. And that 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 scene is... It's a character scene. It's unnecessary to the story, but it adds dimension to it adds dimension to the main character, and it gives some dimension to a supporting character as well. Yeah, that's that that's an interesting moment because um, it's 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 just the film taking the time to show you something that has some emotion to it that doesn't necessarily have to do with the story at all. I love what you said about it being a character scene. And I think back to the thing, what's Mike Nichols sort of style? I think it is what you just said is the characters, right? He builds characters that are multi-layered. And like you said, they don't always, the, the scenes he, the movies he makes are not driven by plot. They're driven by the characters. And like you said, that's, that tends to be maybe forgotten. I mean, he's still Mike Nichols. People know who he is, but it's like, like you said, he, he doesn't fall like sort of sometimes in the canon of the Scorseses and Coppola. And, but yeah, I have to say, I'm going to, this might be cut out from the podcast, but just quickly, I want to put in, um, I was lucky enough to study with Mike Nichols at my acting school and he would, you know, talk about, you would do scenes for him and he would, you know, the first thing he would always say was, so tell us, which meant what's the story. And he was so big on what's the story. He was always, what's the story you're telling us? There needs to be a mid. I mean, I mean, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if you skip a piece of it, we're lost for a minute. The audience is like, "What happened?" They might not be able to say what it is, but they're lost. And I remember he was talking about great moments from film, and he was talking about uh, Dead Man Walking, and he said he loved that scene in Dead Man Walking where one of Sean Penn's right before he's they're about to execute him, 
spoiler alert, one of his <laughs> like nephews or something is like walking. If you remember the scene, he's like walking on the um, linoleum and you can hear his sneakers squeaking. And he was like, that scene to me is perfection. But that again, Andrew, I think is a scene where that's a moment where it's showing you character and we write back to what he loves. And I said, I feel that way about working girl. I said in the scene at the bar, he had a moment, he looked at me and he went, that's a good scene, isn't it? <laughs> I was like, it is a good scene because it makes me cry every time. And I think it's what you said. They have a beat where you see them both register what they've lost. And people don't do that in films anymore. And I think the same with what you're saying about Sidney Pollock. He makes those kind of movies too, where they he'll put scenes in that are character scenes. Anyways, I am totally going off the topic. It was eye-opening for the context of the scene, which was how complicated relationships are. It, yeah. It's not so easy that she caught him cheating on her and they're broken up. There's a part of her that kind of maybe wants to get back, but knows that she can't, you know what I mean? It's, it's a multi-layered moment. If I, if I'm remembering, Jess has seen the movie more recently than I have. So I may be misremembering it, but it seems like there is that moment where she's, she's not yet done with him. That was new to me as a, as a 20 something, when I saw it, that that was possible, you know, whatever high school relationships I had, they, the girl breaks up with you and you're done. That's it. <laughs> I'm going to college now. I forget all about you. Um, you know, and so that was a real eye opener. Of, I was a little baffled that that was a, a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she still loves him, but she knows that he would just hurt her again if they got back together. Yeah. And I guess if you want to say it's also the beginning maybe of her saying, I'm done with that life. I am starting this new life and I have to leave behind. Even the things I love have to be left behind. It's a sophisticated way to move the, move the story forward thematically. Yes. Agreed, Andrew. And it, very well put. I like that. And let's not forget a young Alec Baldwin. Very handsome. Very handsome. What I think, Jess, you've, I don't know that you're the only one who's ever said this about him, but a character actor in a leading man's body. Yes, I always say that about him. Because he's so funny. And he's so great, but they every time he was a leading man for me, I'm like, he's a little boring as a leading man. He's better as a character actor. He's He, he was just too good looking for so long that it, I think it hurt him. I feel the same way about Richard Gere. Um, he, I really disliked him when he was a leading man, and then he aged out of those roles. He was There was this kind of smugness about him. Yes, actually, I did like that. I have to say, Andrew, I'm with you. I get what you're saying. And for me... It was a turn on, but I get what you're saying. But American Gigolo, Officer Gentleman, you're right. He always had a kind of chip. He always has a chip on his shoulder. But then when he when when he aged out of those kinds of roles, he just deepened his craft somehow. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen this film Arbitrage. No. It came, it was out maybe about eight years ago. Like, and he plays uh, he plays a hedge fund manager who's like just trying to. He's involved in all these um, dirty deals, and he's just like trying to keep his company together. And his, his his business is falling apart, and his family's falling apart. And he's just phenomenal in that. Somebody that I saw it with said he's he's so good at making unlikable characters likable. And I agree with you. There's a lot of um, there's a. I mean, now he's canceled, but Kevin Spacey's in it. It's so disturbing because he's trying to sexually assault somebody in that scene. Look, Mike Nichols was even ahead of his time there. there there's some really interesting um, stuff about sexual harassment in that film. 
I think at that time, sexual harassment in the workplace was really just starting to be talked about. And it's that thing of just showing what women have to deal with three days. And I feel like her famous Melanie Griffith's iconic line when she says, uh, was it, I have a, have a brain for business and a bog for sin. What's wrong with it? It's such a powerful line. Yeah. And, and then there's also the, the way that she meets Harrison Ford is so fucked up. He tries to get her drunk and doesn't realize that she's taken Valium. And then she pulls out and he takes her home. And then when they talk the next day, he lets her believe basically that he sexually assaulted her while she was unconscious. So he says, no, that didn't actually happen. And, and this is the romantic lead in the movie. Andrew, it's the 80s. The 80s, yeah. <laughs> With both the romantic storyline and the, the main business While I appreciated the way that it took its time and fleshed out the characters, I thought that the structure of the plot was a little more convoluted than it than it needed to be. I feel you. This is the writer in you, Andrew, and I appreciate it. Because the, the actor in me is like, what? I loved it. But you're right. They did. Well, they put, I agree. I think, but like, I feel like near the, like the last couple, I don't know, last 40 minutes or half hour of the movie, there seems a lot of things they had to jump over, which is like, just give me one they had to jump over. Right. Because it's not really about the business. So it's like, I don't need three plot twists. And I, I think that could have, I think that probably could have developed a little more quickly, given some more space to maybe not be so rushed towards the end and also explore some of the comic possibilities of this plot. I, that, I guess, was not really the, you know, the, the intention of, of the filmmakers. But um, Do you feel like if that story was tackled today, would that be something that got streamlined or would it, what, what your best guess, obviously? I think it would have been more streamlined if it had been made in the 30s. Today, I think it would be slapped together and it would be developed probably either faster or much more poorly with a lot of extraneous jokes in. Or the movie would go from being 100 minutes or whatever it is to being two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah, because the director would let the actors do a lot of improvisation <laughs> and then would be reluctant to cut out stuff that's funny, even though it doesn't the other thing I always find so almost relaxing, relieving, and entertaining in older movies, even now 1988 is so long ago, the prevalence of two shots. When I'm watching movies now, and especially comedies, and it's just solo shot, you know, close up, close up, close up, close up, switch, 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 switch for every single line, it becomes disorienting. And you, unless the person is very, very verbally witty, you're losing a lot of the comedy, which is in the reaction and reaction of back and forth. And and, and that, that movie has more of that. Again, that's probably Mike Nichols' stage back. A lot, of, a lot of directors don't, even some who work extensively in comedy, don't really know how to shoot comedy. It's sort of like a lot of directors don't know how to shoot dance scenes either. Anytime you see a, a dance scene... You know, Travolta famously fought the director in that famous dancing in Saturday Night Fever because he wanted all these cuts and close ups. And he said, no, you have to lock the camera down and just track my body dancing. And that's what they did in those Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly movies. And so now on 
inherited this eye from my dad where anytime on a an award show they would have a big dance number he would start sh- basically shouting at the tv to stop cutting and stop cutting because you couldn't see what the dancers were doing they kept cutting in this angle and cutting in that angle and it seems like maybe there's a parallel there between being able to shoot dance scenes and being able to shoot comedies definitely yeah it's uh they're both so dependent on rhythm both of them you need to be able to see everything happening um that's why i know Jess also loves Bob Fosse. Great transition from choreography to filmmaking and editing. Like you, he edited his films, and you can you can see his choreographer's eye in the way that he cuts not just the dance numbers but the film as a whole. It has this very specific rhythm that gives it life. Yeah, a lot of people just don't they don't have the background and they they just don't know how to give those things the the space and, and cut them with the right rhythm. Agreed. And I would say now that after watching the Fosse Verdon thing, we find out a lot of the editing, especially on Cabaret, was not only Fosse, it was Gwen Verdon in the room with him, who's another dancer. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes, but she also came in and kind of backed him off and said, helped him edit. There's one, two, two more things I want to talk about, but one another quickly, like Mike Nichols drop in. He'd always say with comedy, comedy is just faster. He's like, when I was doing, which again is what you're saying, like timing. He would go, if it doesn't work, just do it faster. You're doing it too slow. <laughs> and it's like people overthink comedy sometimes. And then it's like, you know, all these bells and whistles and improv, says the woman who improvises. But I'm with you. It's like, trust the script. I don't need someone to improvise for 45 minutes. But then where do we cut this thing? There's definitely a place for it. But you have to, you have to know how to do it. And you can't let it completely take over what was originally supposed to be the story of it. And similar to what Mike Nichols says about comedy, the few times that I, in New York, that I got to do bits for Conan's old late night show, anytime he edited something, it was always to shorten it and to speed it up. And he was always finding big chunks of things to take out so that it would happen faster, faster, faster. These are the two things I want to ask. The first one would be, how did you feel about the last shot of the film? You know, I didn't really think about it at the time. It's her in the office, right? She finally gets her own office. And then the camera pans out, showing you office after office after office. And keeps going to show you building after building after building. Now that you mention it, like it has an element of 80s sort of wish fulfillment fantasy, equating material success and, and professional success with some kind of fulfillment, which I guess is... True in life, but especially in 80s movies. I always felt like that final scene was, we've just watched this story come to its conclusion. And then as she, as we pull out and we see that she's one office next to any number of offices in a building filled with offices, in a city filled with buildings, that this is just one tiny little drop in the bucket. And then just like she's just this anonymous thing now. That's what I thought it was too. What now? That's what I thought it was. I thought it was a bittersweet ending because I think you do feel like she finally has this office and then it's like, just it's, she is like, like you said, a drop. And also she's just beginning and will it just keeps going. Like her battle's never ending. <laughs> to me, it was a thing of like, it's only one hurdle in this battle of, of life, of being a woman. <laughs> and partly also maybe even this feeling of, oh, she really did it. She won. And then you pull back and you realize, well, there's a long way to go still. It's kind of sort of a meta equivalent of that final shot in The Graduate where they're just staring out as as if to say, what now? And you just pull out and the city is saying, what now? It subverts that sense of the film being an enclosed world that 
that depicts this unqualified success. My second big thing iconic, I think, I would say is the Carly Simon song, Let the River Run. Yeah, I thought that was weird. Oh. It sounded like um, she'd been listening to Graceland a lot because there's a gospel choir in it and there's kind of African-influenced rhythm to it. And the lyrics about the New Jerusalem seemed, that was <laughs> I found that jarring because it's such a specific religious image in, a, in an extremely secular film. Maybe, I don't remember it. From that time, apparently it won an Oscar. It did, and it was probably it probably got a lot of radio play. But I don't. If I heard it then, I don't. I don't remember it. It's also a very late eighties heavy drum machine. It felt very much of the time. It definitely dated it, and the I, I found the lyrics uh, an odd match for the the tone of the film. The song or variations on it repeat a lot throughout the film. There are a couple diegetic in the party scene rest of the music i think is all that oh there, no there's the sonny rollins uh song in the apartment scene jess i wanted to ask you to to comment on the and andrew you can obviously chime in too um the relationship between melanie griffith and sigourney weaver's characters in the movie i guess my thought was right she finally thinks she found a mentor and this finally has a female boss and then the female boss ends up just being a snake like her male bosses, except for not as obvious. Um, I, I, that's really it. I, I mean, I think Sigourney Weaver's character is not nice, but she's also written, she's very funny in the movie with her, she's so um, preoccupied with herself. Does that dynamic seem to ring true to you at all? Does it seem dated? Does it seem to do those kinds of things? I don't, I wish it was more dated. <laughs> I think women are still taught there's, two spaces or one space. Not all women. I think it does has changed is much better. I think many more women reach back and pick the other woman up. I know for me personally in my career, it has been the women that I've come up with that have found success earlier than I have that have always come back and reached down and grabbed my hand and not the men I came up with. Um, That being said, I have also been in rooms where women will, you know, I mean, I think short, short for men, it's true too, but I think it's the thing of the patriarchy telling you only one woman can be in this area. And so if you feel like you're the one woman in there, not all women again, but you know, it's, it's pretty pressed in you that was like, well, I'm going to fight everybody else off. Not personally myself, but I think that does happen. So yes, it's probably dated, but I don't, I still don't think it's not, I mean, until we have equality, it's not out of the realm. It didn't feel crazy to me. It didn't feel like that doesn't happen anymore. I, I found it interesting the way that that dynamic played out because knowing the basic plot, I was expecting it to be more of um, more of this female rivalry that we see set up and encouraged so much. And then I was kind of concerned about how that was going to play out. That the heroine has this villainous who who wrongs her and then she teams up with a man to get back that's kind of what happens but the way that it plays out is a lot more subtle than what i expected it to be but that but it also it leads me to another thing that that really stuck out as i was watching this film all people of color are on the margin of this film they're security guards and servers at the wedding 
delivery people and laundromat employees. There, I think there is one black woman who is a one of the other secretaries, but there is no person of color who's a developed character in this film. That's something that I think wouldn't happen today. It might just tokenism, but that was very noticeable. But to that point, so it surprises you that as late as... 1988 that that's happening no it didn't surprise me that it, that it was happening I, I don't think that um that white audience would have batted an eye at it in 1988 but watching it now uh 32 years later it was very noticeable yeah i think that's true of i mean like you were saying loving films like we do and i think we love a lot of 70s films like now watching it like i still enjoy them i love them but you are because of who we are and where we are in our lives and where the world is. I'm very aware. It's like, oh, there's no one black in this movie. There's no one Latin in this movie. There's no one Asian in this movie. There's no one Native American. <laughs> there's no, and nobody thinks about it. And if they are in the movie, they're either in there for a hot second and someone calls them a racial slur to show that that's how these people were, which is true. But it's the thing that like, you get used to, like that's the only stories we're being shown. I don't think I really recognize that until like, I don't know, 10 years ago, or like even maybe five years ago. I'd be like, oh, wait a minute. These are not all the stories that should be told. I mean, we can tell them. We should have equal stories, right? Being told where people of color are the center of the movie. I know this is like me preaching, but anyways, I'm with you. It's like, I think in the moment you don't think about it. It's like in the eighties. And now, if that was made now, you can, you just couldn't, you're right. It could be tokenism. I mean, might the two leads might still be white but they definitely would make the other characters of color in there. So they just couldn't get away with it. Yeah. But if that, if that, if they had done it that way at that time, it would have been considered a statement. In the eighties, people were in interracial marriages. People were in, so my point is like, you still could have told it. Would you've had to add some scenes? Yes. But then you just add them or you add like three lines, but you know, now that we stand here, it's like, well then to make the statement, make it. I think they totally could have made it with people of color because they existed then and not just as janitors. It was, yeah. Well, that was another thing um, that Tara and I were talking about after that movie where we were like, what else was Melanie Griffith in? Cause she had a long career. She, she had been a film for like 15 years at that point. She'd been in night moves and smile back in the seventies. And she'd been in body double and something wild. And she was in big films after this, but she was more like a celebrity than a movie star. Yeah, it's weird, right? She has this like re- really breakout role where she shows you she can act. Like she's she's phenomenal in the film. I just go back to that's Mike Nichols. Yeah, it's interesting that, that this role didn't lead to a more successful career. I'm also going to throw in again the patriarchy because I think a lot of women aren't, they don't write a lot of great roles for women. And so she has this great role and then it's like, People are giving her scripts, but they're just, you know, they're not great. If you're a man and you win that, not all of the men that win best, or she didn't even win best actor, actress, but they're given a lot of more meaty roles after that. Whereas women, it's like, God damn, you gotta like. She was about 30, I think, when she made this film. And then after 10 years, she's 40, and Hollywood's basically done with women. If there are like a few failures in that in that window after the big success, then that's pretty much. Especially if you're like, because she's also not a character actor at that point, right? She's like this leading lady, beautiful. So it's like she has to find something that has substance, and you know, people still want to have sex with her. It's tough. So, any final 
thoughts or final summations about finally having seen Working Girl? You're, are you glad that you saw it? Could you take it or leave it? Should you have seen it sooner? I don't think it would have made much difference if I had seen it sooner. As I said before, I think it, especially with comedy, it makes a difference what audience you see it with. I don't know if there would have, it's not, you know, a, a film that's probably very sought after on the repertory circuit. It, it would it would be interesting to see it in a theater with an audience um, and see how that affects the, the comedy of it. But yeah, I'm glad I saw it. I thought it was I thought it was a solid film. I didn't think it was a great film. It was nominated for an Oscar, which I find kind of surprising. Thanks again for joining us on Last One to the Party. If you want to find out more about After School All-Stars, go to afterschoolallstars.org, afterschoolallstars.org. You can find out all the information there. If you want to follow Jessica online, you can check her out on Instagram at jessica.eason.agency. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, you can find me at james underscore eason underscore music. If you'd like to follow the show, you can find us on Instagram at Last One to the Party Podcast on Instagram. And on Twitter, you can find us at Last One to the Party, or you can type in Last One to the Pa number one. That's what it came out to be. If you have an idea for an upcoming episode for us, or you think maybe you'd be a good guest, send us an email at Last One to the Party Podcast at gmail.com. The show is produced and edited by me, James Eason, and the theme music is composed by me. James Eason. Thank you once again for listening. We hope you join us again next time.